Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Tixam Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's talk by meditation instructor Eric Weinberg is a continuation of our study of the book Ultimately Perfect by His Eminence Taisitu Rinpoche, this week addressing Chapter 5, The Essence of Dharma is the Essence of Dharma. In this chapter, we're asked to think about the ultimate view in the context of starting where we are. Then, think about recognizing our growth from the thought, I need to grow and get free from my suffering, to what will benefit others, and ultimately, what am I anyway? If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Tixam Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. Well, how is everybody this morning? Excellent. I mean, it was gray and the sky's looking nice today. It's, it's a good day. Good day. Thank you for coming out for this. Um, when Lama Kathy doesn't uh, give a Dharma talk, uh, one of a few of us uh, meditation instructors are asked to give a talk. We've been working through a couple of books, alternating them. One of the books is the history of the Karmapas. So they're the heads of our lineage and amazing people to uh, understand the biographies of. That's the 17th Karmapa. So uh, we've gone through the lineage founders and then up into the first, and I think we're about to do the eighth and ninth Karmapas next time. But interspersed with that, we're doing talks from this book, Ultimately Perfect, um, by His Eminence Taisitu. And the way it's working is, is that we hear a little biography, and then we do a little of this book. This book really is kind of the teaching. So we're like getting familiar with the people, and then we're getting a little more familiar with what they taught. All of it, all of it, without exception at all, is um, in the service of our own practice. Because all the knowledge in the world, knowing everything, if you could possibly know everything, won't help you uh, feel better. <laughs> and It can provide guidance and guideposts, and it's helpful to know a lot of stuff. But ultimately, it's all in support of the practices that they're teaching us. And the reason is, is uh, Lord Buddha, 2,600 years ago, figured out that, bottom line, all beings, without exception, have the same basic desire, which is to be happy. And he recognized that all beings, without exception, <laughs> seem to um, have at least a few unsatisfactory experiences, 
if not just a constant onslaught of them. So he, he actually got to the place where he experienced what we call enlightenment. I can only uh, tell you what I read in books about it because me, I, I don't have that yet. Um, but one of the definitions is passing beyond all suffering. In this chapter, in this book, we're in the fifth chapter. Somebody asked me, Frank upstairs asked me if this was like a Buddhist joke, the title of this chapter. The chapter is, uh, the essence of Dharma is the essence of Dharma. <laughs> it sort of is a Buddhist joke. Um, that said, um, that's what we're going to talk about today. And... He does a pretty good job. You'll have to forgive me because he uses mo more than one analogy. I know good talks usually don't have more than one analogy, but I like them. And I have one of my own, so you're going to, if if it gets uh, burdensome, I apologize ahead of time. Um The way we start teachings here, almost all the time, is, uh, is to chant the refuge prayer. And the refuge prayer works on all the levels that we'll be talking about in, in this chapter. When we chant it in Tibetan, which if you know it, please follow along, and if you don't, simply in your heart make the aspiration that your refuge becomes the Buddha. So that can that'll be an outer refuge. Something like uh, I don't know if if, if you guys uh, remember the um, old TV cartoon of Mr. What was it called? Tudor Turtle. And he'd always get himself in a jam and he'd yell, help Mr. Wizard. And then this wizard guy would like appear and pull him out of a mess that he got himself into. So there's that kind of refuge. And certainly um, there are beings in this world, both ones we see and one we don't, that out of great compassion really, really try to help us. Um, and then there's the inner refuge, which is actually you have that within your own heart. And the whole idea of these practices is to realize that. So when you take refuge in the Buddha, think to yourself that on the one hand, you have a lot of help. And on the other hand, you can wake up to that already existing in your own heart. We take refuge in the Dharma, which is the teaching that has come down to us um, from a long time. All the teachings and the commentaries and the methods of teaching, 
that have been given to us um, over the last 2,600 years at least, and the Sangha. And once again, the Sangha is all of us together helping each other, and also enlightened beings who may not be visible to us, but still, if we call on them, find a way to reach out and, um, and help us out. So from that point of view, uh, let's chant the traditional refuge prayer. Sanjay Chudang Soki Choknamla Changchu Pardu Dakni Kyapsuchi Daki Jin Sogi Pe Sonamki Drola Penchir Sanjay Ruparsho Sanjay Chudang so ki chok nam la Chang chu pardu dakni kyab su chi Daki jin so gi pe so nam ki Dro la pen chir sanjay dru parsho Sanjay chu dang so ki chok nam la Jang Chu Pardu Dakni Kyab Suchi Daki Jin So Yi Pe Sunam Ki Prola Penchir Sanjay Druparsho Thank you. All right. So the essence of the Dharma is the essence of that Dharma. So as the Buddha said in, in the first noble truth, um, life contains suffering. And it became very logical um, to the hearers of that teaching that, oh, we were working really hard to try to get life to give us what we want. <laughs> and he's basically saying, that's not the way it's going to come. And Taisitu makes the distinction between what is called uh, Nangpa Sanjepa. Nang means inside. So you've probably heard that term before that followers of the Buddha are called insiders. And also he uh, talks about, I forget the Tibetan word, but outsiders. And that doesn't mean that somebody belongs and somebody doesn't belong. That just means that somebody's looking within them for freedom. That's an insider. An outsider is somebody who's looking on the outside. So thinking, for instance, if I could trade my old car in on a new one a little bit better, 
uh, maybe I'd be happier. And then realizing that didn't get me all the way there, finding another one that's a little better than that. And then another one all the way up to uh, maybe a Bugatti Varian or something like that. And I realize uh, it's still not doing the trick. That's, that's the suffering of an outsider. And we all find, you know, what, what, what we're attracted to and what we're running away from and what we'd rather not know anything about. And choose to do what we do very often based on what we can get outside. Buddha said um, that that's fine, but it's never going to bring uh, liberation from suffering. So he started to talk about insiders. And Taisitu uses this uh, analogy about how we, how we come to this place. And he says, we're like a toasted sandwich. And we're in the toaster. And we're getting burned on all sides. And everything's getting really hot. And at the end, if the toaster's set right, you know, the toaster turns itself out and we pop up. But we'll just sit there kind of singed unless somebody comes by and takes it out. He said, so we need somebody. It's like his idea of what a teacher is. And we're all like that. We're all being toasted by this life. And our label for it, if we don't like it, is suffering or unsatisfactory stuff. I thought about it a little a little differently. I thought, okay, any anybody here have a dog? Have had dogs um, from a puppy? Puppies are cute, but they're a mess. They really are, and. They're not, you know, it's like they're, yeah, they're a mess. And they'll annoy you and um, they'll create situations in your home that you might not like and all that, but you can train them. And our minds are a little bit like that. They're a little like puppies when we first come out of the toaster. See, I mixed an analogy. I apologize for that. So, yeah, Jim's got to do the next talk on this book. See, I don't know if this is going to be helpful or not. Um, but, but, you know, at first when you're training your puppy, there have to be, like, you have to teach them what's good and what's bad. What's acceptable, what's unacceptable. And oddly enough, the more they learn that, the happier they get and the happier you get. It's interesting. So the first group of trainings that we get in the Buddhist path 
are all about me. We're like puppies. We need to know where to go and where not to go. What to do and what not to do. We kind of learned some basic ethics. And as we start to train our mind, things change a little bit. When we're thoroughly trained, when we have refuge in the teachings, then something happens. Switch kind of flips. And then we become concerned almost naturally. We don't even have to be told what's going to make others happy, what's going to make others unhappy. So now it's not that I'm going to do this or not do that because of how I feel about the day, but I'm going to do this or not do that because it has an impact on others. We begin to see interdependence. That's the way he expresses the first two turnings of the wheel of the Buddha. The Buddha first is pulling us out of the toaster where we're all singed and instructing us about what to do and what not to do. Not because we need to do that in order to get a pat on the head, oh, you're such a good boy, although we'll get that as an encouragement to keep us going. He doesn't need that from us. We need that. And naturally, once we get a little more comfortable as a puppy, we want actually to make our friend, you know, our human, happy. So we'll cuddle with them. We'll almost have an intuitive sense when they need something. And we begin to learn how to take care of them. And so now there's a group of teachings about what to do and what not to do in order to benefit others. So that's the second turning of the wheel. He said that Buddhism, just because it's all inside, some people say it's not a religion because there's not external forces really that we're ultimately depending on. He said, but it's useful to call it a religion. Why? Well, because at that point of training, we really do need some hierarchy. We need some labels. We need to know what to call things. We need to know where to go uh, within ourselves in order to progress. Here's another analogy. He said, it when you enter this life of um, training the mind or spirituality, whatever you want to call it, religion, it's like being in a 100-floor building with 10,000 apartments, big building. And if there are no labels, if there are no elevators, if there's nobody there to help you know where things are, where your friend is, so to speak, You'll have to search room by room. And you may search the room where your friend was, and they may have left, and you'll miss them. And then you'll search the whole place and not find them and throw it away. However, if you have a teacher, they can say, yeah, take this elevator. What you're looking for is in that room. You can think of that as 
um, kind of like accepting hierarchy and dogma and all those kind of things in a good way. I realize that there's a lot of rebelliousness. There's a lot of rebelliousness in me about all that. By the same token, I can tell you that Lama Kathy, Kempokartha Rinpoche, and others have said, oh, go here and do this, or go there and do that. Do this practice for a while. And it, being the rebellious soul that I am, I would probably usually say, well, I do usually say, why? You know, that makes no sense. And um, they just say, just do it. And sure enough, the map is not the territory. You start working with um, these methods, and they take you to a certain place where you have your own experience of what we will now call the essence of Dharma. And that's the reason for the chapter title, The Essence of Dharma is the Essence of Dharma. It's not like I can sit here and tell you what it is. Not even Tai Situ can. What anybody can do, though, is if there's a little experience, it can point the direction and say, go in this direction and you'll experience that because they'll, they'll at least have developed that level of insight. So, um, for us, the essence of Dharma isn't somewhere out there in the apartment building where you can find it. It's actually already in you. But you can't get there from here without having some experience. Beyond that, he's even saying you can't learn everything. And that's part of the problem with taking the approach that you're going to try to learn everything, if you're a scientist. He makes the point that we're all very, very interested in the light. And then he says, actually, almost everything is not light, it's dark. In fact, the fact that I can see you is just that some light is reflecting off the surface of your skin. But if everything inside there where the light can't even penetrate, is dark. Without that dark, you'd be invisible. If you were all light, you'd be transparent. You'd be invisible. And we begin to understand as we get these experiences that some of the stuff that we didn't value is actually the most important thing. And he strongly, he strongly makes that point in this chapter. So, um, so the first step in having this experience yourself has to do with um, learning what's good and what's bad and what's been taught about suffering and the causes and conditions for suffering and how to overcome them. So we have to get out of this mess. And that's what our teachers are about. 
their external help. The second stage is to recognize that we're connected. And that wrong and right are there, that light and dark are there, the good and bad and indifferent are there. And guess what? Enlightenment's going to contain all of that. The Buddha isn't just the Buddha of the good. When I read that, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. It was to me. And so now... That brings us to the place of the third turning of the wheel, which we call the Vajrayana or uh, Mantrayana. And at that point, you realize that the essence of the Dharma actually contains everything. Nothing is nothing is left out, and it can only be accomplished inside because nobody can get everything. You can't know everything from the outside. Taisitu said something like, he held up a grain of rice and he said, um, I could study this grain of rice with the most powerful machines, the most powerful electron microscopes, the best science, read all the books about rice and I still wouldn't know everything about this grain of rice. So at some point, he's encouraging us to let go of that pursuit as being the thing that will bring happiness to us. Not that we should stop doing science, of course. It's not that we should stop learning or stop studying, but the idea that it's going to bring us uh, to the state of happiness or freedom from suffering, he said, we're, we're just not going to get there. When we're driving towards getting everything on the outside. He said, you might call that materialism, which it kind of is because you're studying the material. Um, the problem with it is, is that today's happiness, even if your new Mercedes makes you happy, will be tomorrow's suffering when it gets a dent in it, or when you find out that the ball joints have to be replaced Especially that. I just had a ball joint replaced. Everything's much better now. He said that he had a Mercedes. But he eventually got rid of it because it was just... He said it was like having an elephant in no circus. It's just... I kind of like that. And and we're all like that. And I don't mean to go like all Maria Kondo on you or anything like that. But what's that? Isn't that right? She's the one, you know, get rid of everything that's not blissful for you. Um, well, he's sort of 
was saying that in a way about his Mercedes. He said he saw a book being sold by a street vendor called, the title of the book was The Monk That Gave Up His Ferrari. He said he bought the book and he never read it, but he really liked the title. So he has it like on one of his little altars. <laughs> and he says, so I became the monk that gave up my Mercedes. And, um, you know, so, you you know, inspiration comes from all over. But, you know, if you ever uh, have downsized or moved or whatever, there's always this experience of letting go of stuff that you thought was just absolutely the best thing and what you loved in life. And you let it go and you're happier. Um, we just moved. We just downsized. It's so liberating. I kind of wish we would have done more. Maybe we will. There's way more stuff that we can let go of. It's true about Dharma items. I mean, in the beginning, I was so hungry to get out of feeling bad. I mean, most people come to the Dharma not because they're already enlightened and feel, feeling really great, you know. Uh, it's usually because something's unsatisfactory. And I thought if I could get the right mala or if I could get the right statue or if I could get the right tanka and if I arranged all my shrine just right, I'd create the causes and conditions for everything to be better. Well, that's all nice. Actually, that's all good stuff. I like my mala. I like my place where I meditate. But really, it's if I was sitting in a dustbin meditating, it, it's more powerful than just having all the stuff. Really, just having it. Uh, there's magical pills, Dharma pills. You can buy online from magical places, all kinds of things. You get into this and, you know, it's like, okay. But none of it's as good as five minutes of good shine. And another five and another five and another five and so on. Um The problem is, is that there's a thing in what's called the four ordinary foundations. The fourth one uh, says, Arvind knows what it says. I, I hate it when people do that to me, too. I apologize. Well, it basically says... Uh, life is a feast handed to you by your executioner. In other words, it's bound to be unsatisfactory, at least ultimately. So, if you're thinking that you can get what you need to be happy from samsara, you're just like being crazy. And you, we make this mistake over and over again. It reminded me when I thought about that of a joke I heard about this, um, this town in the Eastern Europe called Helm. Helm was full of like crazy and idiotic people. 
and there were two uh, two good friends, Chaim and Yussel, and they were watching the news together around uh, dinner time, and they were watching the six o'clock news, and somebody was filming a guy who was about to jump off the bridge, and Chaim says to Yussel, let's have a bet. Will he jump or not jump? Chaim said, sure, $10. I say he jumps. He also says, I'll take that bet. Unfortunately, the guy jumps. Yussel tries to give him the $10. Chaim wouldn't take it. He said, why? He said, well, I saw the news at 5 and I knew he jumped. And Yussel said, I saw it too, but I didn't think he would do it again. (laughs) We're like that. It's really... And that's why once we know what's good and what's bad, Oddly enough, the first good thing, in a sense, is that we learn to sit quietly and let this little puppy have a job, maybe paying attention to the breath. And when a thought comes up, we say, oh, it's a thought, and let it go and just come back. Usually we're all chasing after them as if they're really, you know, important. And we begin to train in that. And we begin to feel a little better, oddly enough, because we're letting go of this insanity of wondering if he's going to jump again. What do they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result? The easiest way to deal with that tendency of having a habitual mind which we all do, that's what in part we call karma, um, is just to learn to let go of a thought. It's really simple, really simple. And then when you get that, actually you feel better and you want everybody else to feel better. That's the next evolution that we talked about before. What do I do to benefit others? So, Ultimately, as we experience ourselves as insiders, we begin to realize that we experience life in this body. We express compassion in this body. We experience bliss in this body. We actually do compassionate actions in this body. So the first thing is do no harm to yourself. The second thing is do no harm to others. The third thing is practice virtue as much as possible, which is benefiting others. And in order to do that, totally tame your mind. Because when you do, you realize it's here. It's all here right now. Your body is both what we call the mnemonic highs. Everybody know it? Have have you heard that word? 
Yes? It's there. That's the body of the Buddha that actually walks in compassion. And the Sambhogakaya, that's the body of the Buddha that experiences everything. Stuff we label as good, bad, and indifferent, everything is bliss. Us too. That's where, where else could it be? That's my question all the time. Where else could it be? It's got to, you know, it, it's for each of us. So for each of us, we all have the essence of the Dharma. And also the Dharmakaya, because that space, that openness that allows everything to be, to arise and fall without labels, without saying this is good and this is bad, without saying uh, I want this and I don't want that, to accept everything with the spirit of openness and creativity, that's the third that's the third turning of the wheel. The third turning of the wheel is asking, who am I really? So that's the progression. And we need to start, since it's a big building, and it's really a lot to take in, we need to start simply with just shine. We really need to start with what's good and what's bad for me so that we can calm down you know, calm the F down. It's like, keep calm and omani pemi hum, whatever. And once we can calm down, we can hope that others can too, and a natural compassion arises. I think this is the third time I've said it. Lama Kathy has always said, if it's something important, say it three times. Um, And out of that, you recognize this is where it is. At least for me, I don't experience it directly, but I believe it. It's part of my belief that, yeah, the essence of the Dharma is in my heart. The, I have the same nature as the Buddha. And the practices that go along with that are a little different then. So we start with Shine, and then we do some compassion meditation. And then we start to see ourselves as a Buddha in a formal practice kind of way. Why? Because the elevator operator, Kempo Kartha Rinpoche, said, go to the seventh floor, room 714, and just go hang out with those people for a while. And rather than try to sort through the uh, limitless number of volumes of instructions, we've been given that so that we can experience ourselves as we are directly. Nothing left out, nothing judged. And that's the third turning of the wheel. When we finally do realize what the contents of those practices are for ourselves, then we pass beyond all this labeling and judging. I like to throw in at this point um, something that's in not in a Tibetan uh, 
lineage particularly, but it's in our lineage in the West. If you think about the story of Adam and Eve, they're like in paradise, you know. They're hanging out. It's kind of awesome. No suffering. No samsara there. I mean, it's Eden. And um, what happens? They get a. They hear that it'd be better to uh, just enjoy the fruit of the tree of life. To life. Enjoy that. But don't worry about the tree of knowledge. Don't eat that stuff. Tree, particularly tree of knowledge of good and evil. In other words, that whole judging thing we got in our head. I like this. I don't like that. And so on and so forth. And we, then we believe that's real. Like, uh, you know, I really believe that the music I like is fundamentally good and the music somebody else likes, if it's different than that, is not. And there's some objective reality. Of course there's not. But people get passionate about it, right? And fight about it. And that's true of governmental systems and everything. Well, that all comes from the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, judging things. They eat from the knowledge of good and evil, and what happens? Out of paradise they go. Outer darkness. Next thing you know, they're having floods, and they're having all kinds of problems. Ten plagues, whatever it is. So what this path is doing is allowing us to directly experience what is fundamentally good and what is fundamentally to be left alone, but coming out of our own essence rather than some outer grabbiness where I'm going to try to grab what I think is good and push away what I think is bad. I don't know how many times, I, it's countless number of times, the very things I didn't want happened, <laughs> it turned out to be really good for me. And the very things I really wanted didn't happen. And I looked back after some period of time, realized that I was protected from something right there. In the moment, though, because I was full of judgmental mind, I was just terribly unhappy. That's the fundamental definition of ignorance. So there are three... They're the three poisons that we're dealing with all the time in this path. And those three things, of course, are craving or whatever word you want to use, attraction. Of, then there's aversion or hatred. And then there's ignorance. He had this wonderful definition for ignorance here. Here it is. The basis of ignorance is that we constantly encounter our primordially our primordial wisdom, which is limitless, but constantly perceive it as an I, which cannot be more limited. There is nothing more limited than I. That is what we call ignorance. So we're moving from this I, we have to start there because that's what we've got. But the steps are going toward letting go of how we define that 
and experiencing it directly as the complete interdependence, you know, all the ways that we're connected um, and all the ways that we can support and all the ways that we can enrich and enhance and protect and so on. So, the essence of the Dharma is the essence of the Dharma because it's your essence. And I can't be here, and Taisitu can't be here to tell you what it is. But we can appreciate the path and encourage it and get beyond the reactivity against um, being taught and being led. Just like puppies at first don't like to get, you know, leash trained. They reject it. But boy, they're really, really happy, ultimately. So this, this is like the root of where devotion finally comes from. Devotion for our teachers. I know you can see it clearly in a lot of people, particularly Lama Kathy. It's because she's had that experience and has developed that closeness. And at that point, devotion actually becomes the warmth and the lifeblood of, um, of her path. And I admire her for that. And it's not like a sycophantic thing. It's not like sucking up in order to get a pat on the head. It's kind of the opposite of that. It's kind of seeing how it really is. Um, so, so that's about all I have to say about that. I hope it wasn't too disjointed. Uh, he kind of covers a lot of different stuff. The full three turnings of the wheel and so on in order to say that um, there's no place like home. And um, I'm certainly happy if anybody has any questions to uh, try to answer them or comments. Um, so the question mic is open. Eric, thank you. Um, so the Dharma covers everything and includes a lot of darkness, is what, you know, and I appreciate what you're saying about that. But I wanted to see if we could flesh it out just a little bit, it, maybe with some examples or some thoughts about how the darkness, for me, you know, I think about it in terms of dark thoughts, difficult emotions, how those mm -hmm. become resources, things of that are, uh, that, that are helpful in terms of um, uh, working with them, um, how do we, you know, it's like, how does that fit in in terms of being something constructed that we work with in a beneficial way? All that stuff, all the crap. Well, that's actually, that that's a good question. Um, in my experience, what I try to do is uh, when I, when I label something as being uh, darkness or afflictive, you know, afflictive emotions. We use that all the time. Um, 
the flips, the teaching is that the flip side of all the afflictive emotions uh, are primordial wisdoms. The differences are that we are still identifying with this I, and this I is liking something or not liking something. And out of the reactivity, whether it's craving or aversion or bewilderment, which are the three big categories, um, we're either rejecting or chasing, or, but we aren't allowing enough space for there to be any insight to see it for what it is. And so the beauty of a daily meditation practice, even if it's a brief one, is we're just getting used to letting go of a thought. I mean, they come and they go, and some are repetitive and so on. But once you've let go of it enough, it's like it appears kind of in space. And then you can work with it more. Physically, usually when I'm grabby, this is sort of interesting, when I'm grabbing or pushing away hard on something, I can feel real tightness in my body. There's like muscles that do stuff. My breath gets a little shorter. And um, when I feel that, even if it's not conscious, I know I've got something working on me, something I'm reacting to. And I try to just return, just even for a moment, to one of the practices. You know, and usually whatever pops to mind. It's not like I carry around a cookbook for this, do this. It's like I, I trust my intuition with that. And then when that releases, usually it feels a little warm and a little relaxed and my breath gets easier. I think everybody has that feeling. So on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, almost no matter what it is, if it's an afflictive emotion, first we can recognize it and then we can work with it a little bit. So, okay, that makes sense. So each of those emotions can be. It's a wake-up call. It's a signal. Yeah. A signal that something that you've gone maybe moved your mind in the wrong direction. Something that mm -hmm. can be then corrected. So I guess that's one way to see the benefit of these things. They're all reminders. I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing what I think yeah. I heard yeah, you yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think that's reminders. right. Okay, I like it. If we don't get too far carried into this stuff, it's a reminder being a little off coming and then coming back however we do and you know we're we're lucky in that we have really good tools to work with all of this we've been blessed we've been told where the room numbers are and what floor they're on and um so i'm actually most of the time except when i'm like unconscious and i trip and fall uh on the path if something really bad, if I get really angry about something, there's two things. One, I'm really angry about that thing, and I realize uh, I'm just poisoning myself. But beyond that, generally, I didn't know I could be that angry about that. It's surprising. It's interesting. It's like, thank you for making me so angry. 
I didn't know that knot was in there. Now I can work on untying that knot. And I have a lot of them. So, you know, there's a lot of opportunity that comes up. And every afflictive emotion, in a sense, is a blessing. It's um, in Vajrayana Buddhism, you know, they're the uh, wrathful deities and the peaceful deities. Generally, it's taught that the wrathful deities have more com- or have stronger compassion than the peaceful ones. We all want that puppy love, but sometimes, you know, something really stronger is necessary. I kind of think of it as um, if if I've got a really really bad edge, and it's hard. A little silk scarf isn't going to wear it down very fast, but some 80-grit sandpaper might, and it could feel a little harsh. But if I keep my head up and realize uh, don't don't cling, just work with it, it can be it can be really hard, but it it can be really really fruitful. So, thank you for that question. Hey, hi. Does acceptance play a role in this in Dharma? Does acceptance Accepting? of both negative and positive emotions play a role in the essence of Dharma? Say it again now. Speak up a little right. bit. Does, does acceptance of uh, both negative and positive emotions play a role in the essence of Dharma? Yes, I think so. I mean, I I think you get what you get, right? Everything that arises, arises from causes and conditions. Everything. That's part of the relative reality that we live in. So, if you're accepting, I'm assuming what you mean by that is you're not rejecting it or pushing it away, right? Uh, I'm talking about accepting And you're not grabbing onto it. Hmm? Accepting it as itself, as in, uh, if something's negative or positive, uh, it isn't bad or good. It just is. Yeah, I don't think it. You, one needs to label it. What I think is, you can feel um, deeply whether you're opening up or you're closing down. And if you're opening up, no matter what it is, you'll be able to work with it. If you're closing down, on the other hand, whether you're closing down by hyper-focusing on getting something or hyper-focusing on getting away from something, you won't be able to work with it. You kind of reify reify it. You make it solid. And nothing... It's like that. Everything changes. Everything has um, the ability to change. Every single phenomena changes, including your emotions. So even accepting is just cultivating openness and a warm attitude and kindness and compassion toward yourself. 
gives you a lot of spaciousness to work with anything. Uh, will that be attachment to uh, the idea of attachment to meditation and enlightenment itself? Oh, yeah. Man, when you're burnt toast, you need to start at the beginning. <laughs> you don't start at the end. I think ultimately on the path, there's something called non-meditation. I have no idea what that is. But that's apparently the highest state of Mahamudra. But I think that's just because you're there. There isn't a separate thing you do called meditation. But meditation, um, okay. It, I think it needs to be really clear that, you know, Tibetan, the written language didn't occur until about 1,300 years ago when um, Buddhism came to Tibet. They didn't have... They had a language, but they never wrote anything down because they were nomadic herders, right? So when they created the written language and Buddhism came, you would think that they would have a word in the language meditation. Guess what? They don't. There's no Tibetan word that means meditation. What they use is the word gum, G with O umlaut M, which means getting used to. And that's what the path is. We're getting used to our minds. And as we get used to them, they settle down. And as they settle down, we can begin to get some insight into it because we're getting used to it. And at the point that you realize that the reactivity is... just activity that you can do or not do and you just drop it then you reach a point of non-meditation because it's just the way it is for you and everything comes and goes uh, they call that the space of all phenomena phenomena keeps happening but you're spacious takes a while so in order to get there and to get used to it, you really need to do a lot of practice. That's my experience. I don't know anybody who doesn't. Dalai Lama still gets up at four in the morning, practices at least four hours before anything happens. That sounds like attachment to me. I, and if he's still attached, I got news for you. I'm totally attached. <laughs> it's, it's good to understand the ultimate but it's also really important. Humility is your absolute uh, armor against really, really kind of bad, arrogant thinking. So for the Dalai Lama to say, I'm an ordinary monk and still do the practice of an ordinary monk, that is both his glory, and he, I think, gets it, I really do think he gets it, by the way. Um, but it's both his glory and his protection. Because it's the ego and the arrogance that co-ops all this stuff um, and turns it into um, power trips and poison. And you can see it in religious clergy that fall off the wagon, so to speak, and do bad things. All of a sudden, they think they're something and... Gosh, it's sad. And I, and I feel compassion for them, actually. Uh, does this do anything with aversion to uh, 
does this have anything to do with emotional aversion to things on the basis of uh, clinging to it or attachment? As in, uh, <clears throat> let's say uh, you want to avoid something because it's uh, embarrassing. Uh-huh. And you want to avoid it only because of that, but you know that it that the thing should actually uh, be done for its own sake. Like, uh, <clears throat> let's say you had something uh, to do for, like, uh, I don't know, go to, like, a <clears throat> go to like a party or something, but you would be embarrassed to do something, but you know you should do it for its own sake. Would that be a... For fight? instance? Uh, I'm thinking about something social, like if you want... <clears throat> if you're embarrassed uh, to be around a certain person uh, because of some past experience. Well... I mean, we all we all are at different stages of development, right? So if you're having troubles, it doesn't. You can, in all humility, simply say, "I can't handle this yet," and back away. And some, and you can aspire to say, "And may someday I be a free free of this, and be able to be my best, even in that situation." So it's not wrong to have a partial failure with something? Oh. It's not wrong to uh, fail at something? I don't think so. I fail a lot of things all the time. I live a humiliating existence myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do. I make mistakes literally every day. I, I, I'm an investment portfolio manager. I get graded on every move I make and every move I don't make every minute of the day and let me tell you there is nobody who bats a thousand in that world including me it's good for the humility to actually not be able to achieve what you think is best so anyway we're kind of oh i just had one thing to say well to i think shakespeare said to err is human but also the fourth preliminary is that what you were looking for earlier just like a feast before the executioner leads you to your death friends family and possessions cause continual torment through the three sufferings that's right you must cut through attachment Attain enlightenment. That's right. Yeah, but, you know, you can't do it artificially. You have to actually work on it. So, let's dedicate the merit. Thank you all for coming and listening. Um, please dedicate the merit silently. I am going to read the end of a prayer that I particularly like as uh, the dedication. Grant your blessing that purifies appearance of objects perceived as being outside. Grant your blessing that liberates perceiving mind, the mental operation that seems inside. Grant your blessing that between the two of these, clear light will come to recognize its own face. In your compassion, Buddhas of all three times, 
please bless me that a mind, mind like mine can be freed. May all our minds be freed. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.